chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, See that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is the GOAT? The greatest of all time, anyone? No, maybe not. That's a sports analogy. You might think, well, Michael Jordan, Babe Ruth, Otani can do both. He can throw, he can pitch, he can hit. Tom Brady, especially as you think about America's love affair with football. (laughs) The GOAT. I asked that question because in sports, there's all this talk all the time about the greatest team, the greatest player, all that, right? Well, when it comes to Scripture, one theologian says, what does it mean to be great? Our world has an idea of it. To be successful, to be respected. We're interested in those things, aren't we? We want to be noticed. We want to be successful. Well, in this passage, and really beginning in Matthew 18, Jesus has been talking to the disciples about that. They came up to him and asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Back in chapter 18. It's continuing. It's like Yogi Berra would say, deja vu all over again. Groundhog Day. Didn't we already see this play, this movie? True kingdom greatness cannot be achieved apart from the grace of God, one man says. We can't even see it until our eyes are opened. The world is upside down. The kingdom of heaven is right side up. So everything you think about in terms of the world is wrong in this way. That takes a work of the Spirit. We see that as the central verse, in particular, 
Matthew 20, verse 28, is stated here today about Jesus' mission. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There, beloved, is true greatness. The humility of servanthood. Embracing Christ by faith. As we look to Jesus, we see that greatness is not about how other people think of us. It's not about being influential and all the things the world has to say about it. It is actually willing service to others for the sake of Christ. What does this mean? First, it means we need the cross. And second, it means that by nature, we kind of chafe against this idea that we need the cross. First, the cross of Christ predicted. Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem, it says, literally, elevation, they're going up from Jericho. He's with large crowds. He takes the 12 aside privately and he tells them for not the first time, not the second time, but the third time what must happen in Jerusalem. They're going there for Passover. The predictions are 11 specific related to what will happen there. His coming betrayal, his coming death, His coming resurrection. People in the world talk this way all the time. Well, this guy, he he, he had it so bad, it's like he was just crucified. And then he did so well, it's like he rose from the dead. People use that language. And the disciples here are kind of thinking that way. You'll see that in a little bit in terms of how they respond to this. But he uses a certain phrase. Do you notice that, children? The Son of Man has come, both in the beginning and in the end section here is bookended by the cross. Who is the son of man, kids? It's Jesus' favorite and most used title for himself. It comes out of the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, when the ancient of days, God the Father, clothed white as wool, is approached on the throne by one like a son of man. It reminds us then that the Son of Man came, meaning he was born into the world and he's eternal God in the flesh. He came not to be served. He had every right to expect to be honored and served when he came because of who he is. And in Daniel 7, we see that all authority and power and dominion is given to this Son of Man. The title then leads us to expect exactly the opposite of what we see. This one came to to serve. He's the one that should be served. Jesus himself told us, as we look at the Old Testament, that this would happen. Matthew said in chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the son of God in the flesh. So this is predictive prophecy. He knew there was a coin in a fish. Remember, we saw that a while back. He knows where the donkey will be that the disciples will untie for his arrival into Jerusalem. He certainly knows what will come with his coming death. He comes to a, 
accomplish the purpose of the covenant of redemption. That in eternity past, there was a covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the plan of God. This is the entire focus of the Scriptures. A Savior will come to die for our sins and to bring us back to God. The redemption that is revealed in the Bible will be accomplished by the Son. It will be applied by the Holy Spirit. All of Scripture points to this. It's the plan of God. It's not plan B. When Adam broke the covenant of works, God said, I will send one to crush Satan's head. When David wrote Psalm 22, a thousand years before the coming of Jesus, he spoke prophetically by the Spirit that this Savior would have his garments divided up. They will cast lots for his clothing, predicting the cross. When Isaiah wrote chapter 53, the whole book inspired by the Spirit, he spoke of a man of sorrows. On the cross, when Jesus cries, it is finished, it is the work of redemption God has planned from before the world began. This is good news for you, Christian. Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. He is God in the flesh. He is determined to accomplish your salvation. He's in charge of it all. He's not a victim. He is laying down his life, and yet as one who is truly man, he knows what involves this, this involves is, is deep suffering. It wasn't like he was a robot. He would be delivered up by wicked men to other wicked men, Gentiles and Jews, and delivered over all of us, beloved, are guilty in this. It was my sin that held him there. But behind my sin and behind the wicked men that were involved in the betrayal and the flogging and the mocking and the crucifixion of Jesus lies the definite plan of God. Romans 8, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Acts 2, Jesus is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Psalm 22, Jesus is forsaken by God. All of this is planned by the Lord, accomplished by Jesus. And as we see in this text, there's more to his dying than just his dying. Meaning, many people were crucified on crosses. The most gruesome, painful death of a cross. Torture for hours. But Jesus speaks in verse 22 of a cup. You see that? Tying together what is about to happen here. When he Later, in the Gospel of Matthew, will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will pray, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will. He's sweating drops of blood because he knows what is about to come. What will be poured out on him as he drinks that cup is something far more horrific than the ten plagues on Egypt, than the judgment against the covenant community of Israel, and the deportation to Babylon, and the judgment on Babylon, and the judgment of the wicked, it's far worse. This cup, as Psalm 11 says, is the fire and sulfur of the wrath of a holy, holy, holy God. It is a steaming, fred, 
fearful, dreadful, unbearable, horrendous cup. Jesus, who is perfect and holy and beautiful, is repulsed by the thought of it. That's why he's sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. The sinless one would drink this filth of sinners. The whole story of the Bible comes to its center here. The first Adam breaking the covenant, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The last Adam keeping the law, fulfilling the covenant, the tree, the cross, the judgment of God against sin, the curse that we read about in Galatians 3, that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The Old Testament said anyone who is hung on a tree shows that that criminal is cursed of God. Jesus himself, as Machen said, bore a curse that wasn't just a human law or a human curse, but the curse of God's law itself. And we tremble as we say this, but it was a curse that rightly rested on him. If that can be so, there's no doubt that the substitutionary atonement is taught in the Bible. That's the only way a curse could rightly rest on the sinless Son of God. He is the substitute. He bears the penalty that we deserve. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He didn't become a sinner. He did not sin. But he became sin. All of my anger, my lust, my impatience, my pride, it's nailed to the cross. The opposite of number six comes upon Jesus. The Lord curse you. The Lord forsake you. The Lord turn his back on you. This cup is what Jesus drank for all of those that were given to him by the Father from before the foundation of the world, for all those who come to him in faith and repentance. If you don't know Christ by faith, you will drink the cup of God's judgment and wrath. Today is the day of salvation, to come to Jesus, to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luther, as long as sin and death and the curse remain on me, sin damns me, death kills me, the curse curses me. But glory of glory, grace of grace, when that curse is transferred to Christ, all that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. The great exchange, the goodness of the gospel. He is a ransom. You see that verse 28? The price paid to deliver us from bondage. We are slaves to sin and Satan and hell by nature. We are slaves to self. He comes and pays not a ransom to Satan, but as DeYoung says, to the Father, in perfect union with the will of, of the Father. This is not cosmic child abuse. There is unity, love, purpose, and will between the Father and Son. The ransom is for many, for, instead of, in place of. He is the substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of his people. 
Jesus didn't die despite God's love, as one man writes. He died because of God's love, because the Father so loved you. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. There's more to what Jesus did than this, of course. He defeated Satan. But there's not less than this. If you love someone who's been hurt, wounded physically, emotionally, spiritually, it will cost you. You will be drained, perhaps. But you look to Jesus for grace to love them. When you love your children, right? You feed them. You get up at night with them. They throw up. You clean it up. They mess up. You pray with them. They sin. You sin. You cry out to God together. You read with them. Parents who don't do this have kids that grow up physically, but they don't grow up in any other way. Parents, it's costly, but you do it because you love them, because God gives you grace to pour into them. Sacrifice is at the heart of real love. He dies that we would be forgiven. He rises from the dead that we might have eternal life. The cup of judgment is not the end. He gives you by his grace the cup of the new covenant in his blood. He is alive. He is God. He fulfilled the law. He vindicates everything. He is righteous and holy. God says, I'm pleased with you. I love you, my son. He's alive. The gospel is true. He's alive. Death will not defeat you anymore. Satan and hell has no claim against you anymore. He's alive and coming again. He predicts all this. God, give us eyes to see, secondly. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we are this woman and these sons. Look at what happens. Just as Jesus talks of this, again, his death, his resurrection, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who's that? Who are these boys? Well, they are James and John, among the inner three with Peter. Who is this mother? Is she like every other mother? She just pushes her kids forward. She has bumper stickers on her car. Look at my kids. Look what they've done. Look at how wonderful they are. If you have bumper stickers, I'm not judging you. We love our kids. We love it when our kids succeed. We want them to do well. I'm not saying that, but don't you wonder what's happening here? She pushes them forward or they're behind her. The other gospels say they're talking as well. So who's on first? Who's speaking here? Probably both of them. There's a combination of things. Who is she? You might think she has no faith. She's just looking out for herself. She struggles. But do you know there are three women at the cross when Jesus dies? Mary, his mother. Mary Magdalene. And a third woman. The third woman is identified in three different ways in the Gospels. Matthew says she is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She is this woman. Mark says she is Salome. That's her name. John calls her the sister of Jesus' mother. So most likely it is Salome, Jesus' aunt. That's most likely who this is. 
She comes in faith, respectfully. She's asking something of Jesus. And Jesus, in tenderness, in grace, listens to her and says, don't you love that question, verse 21? What do you want? Beloved, what do you want from Jesus today? He said that to you. We might think in our minds, wow, I would like my spouse to respect and love me more. I would like my kids to obey me more. I would like my boss to honor me more. I would like my car to be fixed. I would like my health to be changed. Those are not bad things to pray for according to God's will, but not from selfish reasons. We're all turned in on ourselves. What do you want? What did Paul say? That I would count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what Paul prayed. God, give us your spirit because by nature we don't pray that and we don't want that. Change my heart of selfishness. Help my spouse and I to love and respect one another. Give your spirit to my kids. Soften the heart of my boss. Teach me patience as I suffer. Heal me if it be your will. Teach me to trust you, to depend on you. What do you want from Jesus? Make me more like you, Jesus. That in-law that I'm hardened against, that bitterness that is in my heart against a friend or family member, God, kill that sin. Give me eyes to see the beauty and love of Jesus, to hate that sin that clings to me so easily. Help me to run the race before me. What do we want from Jesus? Give me grace to endure to love you, to praise you. What does she want from Jesus? She wants her sons to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. (laughs) You're thinking, whoa! If you're going to go all out, go all out. (laughs) What's going on in this? On the one hand, the hope for honor is not evil. God crowned his people with honor when he made us in his image. This is a believer's type of question in the sense that Jesus will reign. She believes that. But like Luke 18 says, both her and her sons are hindered from seeing this. It's a spirit-given grace for anyone to see and believe this. They think the kingdom of God is right now. Toss out the Romans. You're going to Jerusalem, Jesus. Let's reign. I don't want to talk about suffering. I don't want to talk about crucifying. That might be a metaphor or rising again. That that sounds good, but let's go back to talk about the thrones. Remember that? Chapter 19? We're going to be on thrones, all 12 of us, the disciples. Let's go there, Jesus. Ooh, I like that. What kind of throne? What kind of crown? Who am I going to rule over? It's our heart of sinfulness. It's our heart of selfishness. It's a cringe-worthy request. Jesus, when you are in charge and take power, I want to be the prime minister. My brother is chief of staff. They want to use Jesus as a means for their ends. How can I get to the top and Jesus kind of helps me? It's embedded in all of our hearts. Even as Christians, it's still there. We know it. Jesus says, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. He is so kind. We would be so brutish. 
You don't understand how suffering comes first, then glory. When Jesus is on the cross and he shows the glory of God, there are two people there on his right and left, criminals. The disciples don't understand what he is asking them either. Are you able to drink the cup I'm able to drink, he says? Remember that cup, the cup of judgment? They say, plural, James and John are speaking here, without thinking. Who's guilty of that this week? Impulsive, quick to anger, slow to speak. Quick to anger, quick to speak. (laughs) This is an astounding look at their pride. Yes, we are able to drink it, they say. Yeah, we're able. Your jaw drops to the floor. They're not self-aware at all. You're able to drink this? So confident in themselves. So lacking trust in Christ. Oh, these men, along with nine others, would be in Gethsemane with Jesus. He's praying, and they are... They're like mom and dad kids when you're going to wake them up on a Saturday morning. They're sleeping. Lest we hammer them, we are the same way by nature. Jesus goes on, you will drink this cup. Whoa. Keep that in your thoughts as we go on. But the question of what position you'll occupy, the advancement you'll get, that's not up to to you. That's the Father's providence and plan. God raises up, God casts down. Emmaus Road, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Jeremiah 45, verse 5. It's a question for every pastor, every husband, every wife, every kid. Seek them not. Meaning, my place, the praise of me, my importance. It's like last week, the danger of serving the Lord out of pride. What I get out of it. Looking down on others. Alexander says, if God in his kindness and providence does give you a place of importance, and he has for many of you, and prosperity, and prominence, take it from him and give thanks to him for it. No fake humility here. And use it exclusively for his glory. And say to yourself each day, what do I have that I did not receive? The answer, nothing. What would the others think of this? Do you wonder? James and John are going on here. The others are no different. Do you see what happens? First of all, Peter's not there. The inner circle of three is broken up. The fellowship of the ring has been divided. Peter joins with the other nine. He hears about this. They're indignant because they want the same glory. They're no different in their hearts than James and John. They're thinking... What puts you guys at the right and left? We want to be there. Beloved, this kind of self-seeking fractures their fellowship. They are at their worst here. And when we are at our worst, know this, Jesus died for the sins of Christians. Jesus died for those sins when we are at our worst, depending on ourselves, absolutely self-focused. He died to forgive them. He died to cleanse us from them. He died to bring us to himself. He died to change us to be more like him. This story is a mirror 
of the pride of our hearts, of doing anything for self. Eric Alexander asked this question. What is the real problem in missionary situations and in churches? He says this, the real problem are the relationships between God's own servants. Elders, pastors, deacons, church members. What has happened, he says? Someone has lost the servant spirit. It's self, it's pride, and Satan is behind it all. Jesus in grace and warning reminds them, look at these Gentiles, verse 25, a pagan ruler. How do people want to influence other people and get ahead? They want connections. They want to be the top dog. They want power. They want control. They want to be the boss. They want to lord it over other people. That's the way of the world. It works often. They get to the top. They boast. People praise them. They die and they're forgotten. But, verse 26, it will not be so with you. Emmaus wrote, may it not be so with us. In this church, from this pulpit, from pastors, elders, deacons, from church members, from visitors, may it not be so with us. Give us your spirit, God. Because apart from the grace of God, here we are, boasting in ourselves. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven, Alexander says, is hallmarked how? Not by having servants, but by being a servant. The world's the exact opposite. You're great if you have servants. You're great if you are all of this in a bag of chips. Only the gospel gives you motivation for unselfish living. This is not beating us up. This is not out of guilt. It is out of joy and gratitude and humility for all we have in Christ. Our Savior who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for you. Jill and Joe and Bob and Lucy and Paul and Mary and Joanne, for you. God, give us grace to be blasted out of self into joyful humility, to serve others, not for what we get out of it. The world does that. Oh, I'll do this and you do that. But to do it for the, the glory of God and the good of that person. Jesus died that we might be freed from self and live, 2 Corinthians 5, for his sake, for whom we have been saved. We don't live for ourselves, Christians. We don't belong to ourselves. Body and soul, we belong to the Lord who loves us. Let this mind be among us that is in Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be grasped. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross. And so I ask again, what does it mean to be great? Or to put it this way, what kind of greatness do we admire? What impresses you most about other people? Is it when you see someone and say they live for the glory of God? Only if the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see that. 
our response in gratitude is to serve. A servant leader says, I'm here to put your needs ahead of mine. A servant leader is not passive, not apathetic, not weak, not a pushover, not fearing man. A servant leader is also not serving so that they serve me, so that they praise me, but serving to help them for their good, putting their needs ahead of my own, modeled after Christ, the Son of Man. Christ was never lazy. Christ never used people. Do you know as you read the Gospels, he never thought of himself in the way we do, right? Obsessed with ourselves. He loved and served. He is truly God and truly man. He's sinless. We're not. But he gives us grace to serve in your calling. Callings. Spouses. Children. Parents. Work. Neighborhood. School. Church. Where can I use my gifts to serve at Emmaus? Where can I jump in and say, how can I help? So many of you are serving. But if you're not, just talk to someone today. I don't know where to serve. I don't know how to serve. How can I help? How can I serve as Christ served me and loved me? What's the rest of the story? Remember that bookend? I said, keep that in your thought. What happened? Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. James and John. Oh, James and John. These men, by the grace of God, changed. What Jesus said would happen to them did. They would drink the cup of suffering. Not to pay for sin, but because they loved the one who died for their sin. Not long after this, James would be the first martyr beheaded in the book of Acts by Herod. John would be the last of the disciples to die, his brother. Exiled to Patmos. Decades of serving and suffering for the Lord. They shared in Christ's sufferings. They share now in Christ's glory. Emmaus Road, what do you want from Jesus today? That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. That I may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen.